Hello and welcome to session three, which is the sovereignty of God. Just want to quote here from Julian of Norwich. He showed me a little thing, the size of a hazelnut, lying in the palm of my hand. I was given to understand it's everything that is made. It lasts and shall last because God loves it. And in this way, all things have their being by the grace of God. In this little thing I saw three properties. God made it, God loves it, God keeps it. Herein lies our security. The sovereignty of God. This attribute may be more than any other sets the pulse racing in most Christians. They adore the love, the mercy, the grace, the kindness of God, but speak of his sovereignty the right to do with his own as he chooses, and suddenly the smile and the warm fuzzy disappear. The fists come up and they will defend to the death their right to what they consider to be theirs. He can have his 10%, the rest is mine. The most common reaction is a bleat. He gave me free will, which incidentally is a name for nothing. It only makes us free to disobey him and walk away. So free will raises its head and the defences are up. I conclude that even Christians sometimes would rather God kept his distance and left us to live our lives at our own pace and in our own way, or we feel invaded. Consider the following cautionary tale. A father and his four-year-old son were having a beef burger together They've just been served and before the child can start his food, the father reaches over and cuts his burger in half, at which point the child screams, It's my burger and you've ruined it. Dad thinks, I'm your father, eat your burger. Then the Lord spoke to this man. I want you to apologise to him, you just violated his space. You didn't ask him if you could cut his burger. Somewhat reluctantly, the father does as he's told, thinking he's four years old, I just bought him a burger and the Lord wants me to repent. He leans over and says to the little boy, I'm sorry I cut your burger without asking. Will you forgive me? Would you like another one? Tears finish, anger goes, and the little boy says, that's okay, Dad, I'll eat this one. As the father pondered this situation later, he felt the Lord was saying, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. And sometimes I just reach into your life without permission and take half what you have, half of what you consider to be yours, and your reaction is exactly the same. What you're thinking about that story right now will be an indicator of how you perceive God's sovereignty. Unlike the father in the story, God doesn't apologise for being God when he helps himself to our lives. Sometimes he just reaches over and cuts the thing in half. The reason being we are not our own, we're bought at a price and he reserves the right to do with his own as he chooses. It's called sovereignty. We belong to someone else. We have no rights to ourselves anymore. We had no rights before when we belonged to the kingdom of darkness and now we are blood-bought out of that kingdom into the kingdom of light and we've laid down any right to ourselves. At least if we are wise, we have. If we allow the providence of God by the goodness of God and our submission to him to work in our lives, though it may be painful, 
we can see the fruit of his doings. If we do not agree to allow God to be sovereign in our lives, sometimes in his providential care of us, he will reach down and take half, if not all, of what we consider to be ours. Put another way, if we don't come into that place of submission to the divine will and allow the Lord the whole of our lives, he will move sovereignly to do the thing he purposed anyway, which is to conform us to the likeness of his Son. Sovereignty. Mostly we don't like it, but we must agree to it. That little illustration may prove for you why I personally have concluded that Christians largely do not like God to be sovereign in their lives. He sometimes helps himself to what they think is theirs. And this is the reason. There is within the human heart, says A.W. Tozer, a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always possess. It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. They express the real nature of the old Adamic man better than a thousand volumes of theology could do. They are verbal symptoms of our deep disease. The roots of our hearts have gone down deep into things and we dare not pull up one little rootlet lest we die. Let's pray before we go any further, shall we? Father, we come with the fear of God in our hearts. We bow our hearts Revere and look upon you with awe. You have complete mastery over the affairs of men. Dear Lord, be pleased to remove the fear of loss that possesses so many of us. Come, enable and anoint our eyes that we may see you as you really are. We pray with Julian of Norwich. God of your great goodness, give me yourself for you are sufficient for me. Were I to ask anything less, I should always be in want. Only in you have I all. Help us to let go of everything and everyone that's holding us back from allowing you to be the absolute sovereign in our lives, or we shall forever be in bondage. In Jesus' name. To the surrendered heart, the sovereignty of God is absolute security. A surrendered heart understands that in all of life there is no second cause, that God is the first cause of everything they experience. In his sovereignty over their lives they find their peace and their joy. They've concluded that there is within each of us an enemy which we tolerate at our peril, the self-life. They have decided to say yes to God because they know they can't lose. They recognise that if they say no to God, they can't win because they cannot say no and Lord in the same breath. Understanding what we mean when we talk about the sovereignty of God is really important. The unsurrendered soul will labour constantly against the providential workings of God until, like the son in the story of the prodigal, they find that the only place to go is home to Father's loving embrace. As human beings, we have something of the attributes of God within. Our sovereignty is known as free will. None of the attributes of God are used alone. You will always find them in tandem. 
Sovereignty by itself will be a fearful thing, but put it together with love and holiness and the mixture is not threatening, but reassuring and beautiful. The word sovereign means chief, the highest or the supreme one, the one with maximum authority. The queen is our sovereign lady. There is none higher than she. She is the highest authority in the land. When all else fails, people sometimes make an appeal to her as their final effort to get justice or whatever it is they're after. But she's only supreme over a certain amount of territory. There's only one true sovereign person in the universe and that's our God. Compared to him, no one is sovereign. 1 Timothy 6.15 and Isaiah 44.6 are both examples of the sovereignty of God, the total sovereignty. Psalm 24.1 is a declaration of this. 1 Chronicles 29.10-13 reveals to us David's understanding of God's absolute sovereignty. The definition of sovereignty is that God can do with what he created exactly as he pleases. There are absolutely no restrictions on him. He is totally free. Psalm 1356, Psalm 1153, Isaiah 45, 9 and 10. A wonderful example of the realisation of this is found in Daniel 4, verse 35, where Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses and is converted discovering as he does that God does what he likes. This is one of my personal favourites. And he allows in his wisdom what he could easily prevent by his power. This is why we so often do not understand his ways with us. We find it difficult to bow the knee to his sovereignty. As Christians, we like God to do that which we think is right and suits us, particularly in the area of morality. We praise him when he does what we like, but let him do something we don't like and it's, what are you doing? I don't think that's fair. We question his right to be sovereign as he takes half our burger. There is a resistance, as A.W. Tozer described. If we're going to move on, we have to make him lord of our lives, not just saviour. There's an opportunity to do that at the end of this teach where you'll find a prayer of surrender to his lordship in every area of your life. Charles Spurgeon said, There is no doctrine more hated by worldlings as the great doctrine of the sovereignty. When God ascends his throne, his creation gnashes their teeth. When he proclaims his right to do as he wills without consulting them in the matter, God on the throne is not the God that they love. Isn't that the truth? Men will allow God everywhere but on the throne. Healer, yes. Fight for us, yes. Saviour, yes. Redeemer, anytime. Counselor, comforter, yes. But the minute he wants to be the sovereign Lord, we don't want it. There's a jangle. We don't like it. He doesn't consult us. Just like the little boy and the burger. Beloved, we limit him by our resistance. If he is sovereign, he can do as he pleases, even though for us it seems wrong. We really need the revelation that we are created for his good pleasure. He is not created 
for hours. Revelation 4.11 in the King James Version says, Everything was created for thy pleasure. That'll be it. It's not, does he bless me, but do I bless him? That should be the question uppermost in our minds. We need a deeper revelation. He must be able to do with me as he proposes. He has to have that absolute right. Either I am sovereign or he is. We are and were created for his good pleasure. It's right because he did it, so it must be right and fair. He is absolute justice, so he's never unjust in anything he does. There is never any compromise about this in the Bible. God does things because he pleases. It pleased him to bruise his son that we might receive salvation. Isaiah 53.10 It also pleased him to have all the fullness dwell in Jesus bodily. Colossians 1.19 We wouldn't disagree with either of these. But what about this one? 1 Samuel 2.6 Hannah's prayer The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. This could tread on some toes here. The Lord kills and makes alive. He's saying, I'll do as I please. Got it? That's sovereignty. But this is where we say, whoa, hold on a moment. When we should be saying, Amen. Thy will be done, Lord. Job had some insight. Take a look at Job 12, 9 to 17. Another one is Proverbs 16, 4. You may swallow a little hard at that one. Give you a reality check. Isaiah 45, 9 tells us something. We need to see things as they are and stop picking an argument with God. This one is clear. You can almost feel him with his tongue in his cheek. If you want to have an argument, pick it with someone your size. Strive with your own. Clay pots, argue with the clay pot. Don't argue with me. I'm God. Don't criticise me. Don't disagree with me about how I made you. Don't say to me, God, I should have a handle at this side and I don't like the position of my spout. Or whatever it is you don't like. God can do as he pleases with the clay. There's something significant in Romans 9, 17 to 20. It's God's prerogative. He has mercy on some and not on others. Verse 20, who are you to argue? The whole point of this is that if God did it, it has to be right. He knows what he's doing. His absolute kindness, justice, righteousness, humility and love. He's not puffed up with his own importance. He doesn't need an ego trick. trip. He took the form of a servant, remember. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. The point is that the bowed knee is the only answer. We cannot understand, we have to accept without argument. It's the way of peace. Job twenty two twenty one. Get acquainted with who he really is, not who you think he is. Put another way, let God be God in your life and in the lives of others. God has given and he's taken away. Blessed be his name. We need a greater revelation of his sovereignty. We will understand one day and he will wipe away all tears. He's told us he will. So how does the sovereignty of God fit with our free will? 
God decreed that you should have a right to choose. Adam and Eve were created moral beings. They had personal liberty and responsibility for their own choices. So just how do we understand free will and the sovereignty of God in our lives? Let's say that the ship, the QE2, is docked and her course is being plotted for New York. She's programmed to enter New York Harbour in however many days it takes. She can sail on autopilot if necessary and she will get there. During the voyage, the people on the ship go backwards and forwards, up and down. They may even walk away from the direction in which the ship is sailing. But at the end of the trip, they will dock in New York. Free will is like that. We go back and forth, up and down, even walk away. But if we're believers, we're contained in the ark that is Christ Jesus and we will get where we're going. (laughs) Glory to God. God factors in all our choices. Something we'll see when we get to his omniscience, another lovely attribute that is such a comfort when we understand it. And we have to agree with Job, Job 33, 12 and 13, God is greater than man. And ask the same question, why do you contend with him? To say and allow God to be sovereign is to say he's supreme over all things, that there's no one above him, that he's absolute lord over creation. Therefore, there's nothing that is out of his control Nothing that catches him unawares, nothing that is not seen and heard by him. It means every creature in heaven and hell must at the last trumpet bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2 verse 10. Consider the majesty of this passage in Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40, 25 and 26. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who's created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. The best piece of advice we may ever receive comes from Job, Job 22, 21 and 22 in the NIV. Submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. Amen to that. Before we conclude, we need to see three circles the third being the smallest in the middle. The overriding will of God is the first one. The second one is the permissive will of God. And the third one is the perfect will of God. God's overriding will. This means if he's decreed it, it's definitely going to happen, like the example of the QE2. He has his plan and it will come to pass. Nothing that catches him unawares or makes him nothing catches him unawares or makes him change his eternal plan. 
Jesus' return for his bride and the second advent are already decreed and the Father knows the dates. Nothing you or anyone else can do will change that it's preset. And we see an awesome example of this in the death of Jesus spoken of in the book of Acts, Acts 2, 22 and 23. When men did this, they thought they were acting under their own volition. Herod and Pontius Pilate just made their own choices, little realising they were carrying out God's will. It was predetermined by God. The lamb slain from the foundation of the earth, Revelation 13, 8. It's awesome stuff. Then we've got God's permissive will. This is what God doesn't necessarily approve and indeed some cases hates, but he allows or permits in his permissive will. He allows in his wisdom what he could easily prevent by his power. Sovereignty without love would bring power to bear on situations he didn't approve of and to change them, but he doesn't do that. Because though he's sovereign, he allows man free will and he never forces us to do anything. He always lets us choose. This is why those who end up in the lake of fire have made choices that sent them there. Free will, as I said before, is a name for nothing. It's only free to walk away from God or disobey him. The only safe place for your will is totally surrendered to God. And then we come to God's perfect will. This is what he wants to happen. For instance, he desires that all men everywhere should be saved. But their choices mean that they won't. Judas' betrayal of Jesus in Matthew 26 is a good example. Verse 21, one of you shall betray me. Verse 24 goes on as it is written. It's written by God's foreknowledge. God knew what Judas would choose. Jesus is saying the overruling will of God will come to pass in my life and the life of the betrayers, but it will be his choice that determines it. Awesome. So before Judas goes out to do the deed, Jesus gives him just one last opportunity to believe. Judas was not yet convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. Will you at this last minute believe in me? And in love he hands him a sop. The sop was always given to the most honoured guest at the table. So Jesus offers it to Judas, who's about to betray him. And it was at the moment when Judas received it, he made his final decision. He chose the money. The overriding will of God wanted him saved as it wants all men saved. But the characters decide which part they will play, as we saw with Herod and Pilate. Israel is a prime example of a nation exerting self-will. He had a plan for them, but they went their own way. But that hasn't changed his plan. They will come into all the blessings he promised But for the moment, their destiny as a nation is on hold. And an awful lot of the problems that they bring upon themselves are self-brought on by themselves, by their choices. So God always gives us that last opportunity, as we saw with Judas, and with the thief who was crucified with Jesus, and turned, even in his extremity. One did, one didn't. 
God always wants redemption, always holds it out, salvation and blessing. He never delights in the eternal death of any man. Ezekiel thirty three eleven. That's God's overruling will in action, much like a script of a play. It's written, that is the way it's going, and that's the way it'll end. The plan hasn't changed, no matter what things look like. And this last circle is the one we should aim to be in. Most of us are in his permissive will, and he will have his way no matter what we do. We only make it more difficult for ourselves when we resist him. We've only got to look at Israel to see that. If you want a miserable Christian life, live in his permissive will. But if you really want to be blessed, stay in that smallest circle. Keep connected with him. We are his creatures, created for his pleasure. Just a couple more scriptures to show the sovereignty of all three members of the Godhead. The Father is sovereign is shown in Ephesians 1, 5 and 6 and 11. The Son is sovereign, John 5, 21. The Holy Spirit is sovereign, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. Co-equal, co-eternal, co-sovereign. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. To end this session then, Philippians 1, 6. All is going to be well. He will do it. Your salvation isn't dependent on your efforts, only on your choices. You are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. The way you come is really down to you. The easy or the hard way, but come you will. Romans 8.29 is the pre-planned destination for us all, to be conformed to his image. He's going to make sure you'll be like Jesus. That's his plan. And Romans 8.28 is your guarantee. Whatever happens, it will only further God's plan. It won't thwart it. The devil plots all his schemes, but it's heads God wins and tails God wins and you're in him, so you win too. God's sovereignty has everything covered. I think you'll agree that there is no more comforting thought than this. God will do as he's planned, and he's planning for you in love. God turns everything to good, Romans eleven thirty six. all things, to whom be the glory forever. Lord, have your way in my life. We can put up with anything if we know in the end it works out for good. Amen. Next time we will look at God's omniscience. Um, I promised you a prayer. If you pray with me. Lord Jesus, I call it the Lordship Prayer. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge my need of you and I accept you as my Saviour, my Deliverer and my Lord. I invite you now to be Lord, the authority and to be in control of and be the final decision maker in the whole of my life. Lord of my human spirit and all my spiritual awareness and worship. Lord of my mind, my attitudes, my beliefs, my thinking and my imagination. Lord of my emotions and the expression of my feelings, anger, grief joy, etc. Lord of my will and all my decisions. Lord of my body, my physical health, my exercise, my diet, my rest and my appearance.
Lord of my sexuality and its expression, Lord of my family and all my relationships, Lord of my secular work and my Christian service, Lord of my material goods and my perceived needs, Lord of my finances, Lord of my plans, my ambitions and my future, Lord of the manner and timing of my death. Thank you that your blood was shed that I might be free from the consequences of sin and that my name is written in the book of life. Amen. That concludes this session and God bless you.